This morning, we're concluding our four-week sermon series entitled, When Tragedy Strikes, and we're completing our study of Job. Now, like I said earlier in the announcements, if Job has caused you to desire other opportunities to lament or feel like that would be beneficial for your soul, um, please plan to be present with us this Friday at 7 p.m., and we'll hold a worship service of lament at that point. All of us have something to lament, particularly in light of the past year and a half of pandemic. Um, and, and like I mentioned, we, we've got details that we're working out around live streaming of this, so you can feel free to join us from home, I believe. We'll, we'll get you that information soon. So as we've studied Job, we've brought three assumptions with us. First, while God works always to turn evil into good, this doesn't mean that God causes the evil. Part of the mission of Jesus Christ, after all, is to rid the world of sin, death, and all manner of brokenness, including suffering and the evil that causes suffering. Second, we're all going to encounter tragedy and grief in some respect in our lives. Therefore, it'd be good, in fact, it's probably you know, a really important thing for us to have a plan in place for how we're going to deal with the tragedy and grief that we will encounter in our lives. And third, our faith has something to say in response to tragedy, and in fact, can be central in how we respond to tragedy. Because our faith centers God, this means that God is going to have something to say in and through us around how we encounter things that bring us grief. So over the last three weeks, we've looked at God's sovereignty. We've looked at God's seeming absence in the midst of tragedy and the mystery of how God sometimes shows up in the whirlwind in our lives. And this week, we're going to consider the final chapter of the book of Job. We'll be reading from Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, and then going to verses 10 through 17. You can follow along in your bulletin, or if you'd like to use your Red Pew Bible, you can do so uh, and follow along on page 488 of your Red Pew Bible. I'd invite you now to listen to God's word to you. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides knowledge, hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who knew him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. 
he named the first daughter Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karenhapuk. In all the land, there was no woman as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations. And Job died, old and full of days. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we prepare to dig into this text, would you pray with me? Holy One, as we sit before your scriptures this morning, grant us your spirit to inspire and illuminate our hearts. Help us to receive from you what you're offering to us this morning. We pray this all in the name of your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Toward the end of 2019, which was like two years ago, but it feels like so much more, doesn't it? I started reading an epic fantasy series of books called The Wheel of Time. Have any of you heard of The Wheel of Time before? A couple of hands. Um, if you haven't, good news, Amazon has optioned it. It's going to be a show beginning at the end of November. Um, so you can get caught up on this like immense fantasy if you want to, if you want to. It has 14 books, and each of these books clocks in at like 800 pages. So it's like a commitment, y'all. Um, it's four and a half million words. And as someone who writes like a lot of words, for those of you who read my devotionals and who listen to my sermons, you know I write a lot of words each week. Four and a half million words is a lot. And after reading five or six books at the end of 2019, I began to think, man, I really hope this series sticks the landing because I'm like, I'm invested now. I've read 3,200 or 4,000 pages of words and I really hope the ending is satisfying. Maybe you've encountered a book where it does not stick the landing, and you're like, I used up my valuable time reading about these characters, and I just, it doesn't click. Job kind of feels like that to me. After over 30 chapters of buildup, there are these long, involved dialogues about God's goodness and God's justice, Job is just suddenly restored, given twice as much stuff, 10 more kids. It's as if success, according to the book of Job, is to go back to the old normal, back to the time when all was well. And particularly as I'm reading Job, almost 20 months into this COVID pandemic, the idea of going all the way back to the way things were seems impossible, no matter how much I might like to do that. Job, the book of Job, seems to wrap things up too neatly, too tidily. The ending of Job doesn't seem to do justice to the lived experience of so many in our world, of so many in our community, of, of you and our congregation who've gone through tragedy. So, what are we supposed to do with this ending? Well, one way we could deal with it is we could say, well, nobody's story ends like Job's, not on this side of heaven anyway. Maybe we could interpret Job's ending as a promise for what is to come. And, and that, I think, 
that's true. Job's ending is a promise of what's to come, but that doesn't seem to be the thrust of this book. The entire book of Job, the focus is on how faithfulness shapes our worship and our expectations of who God is and what God will do in this life. Job expected God to show up in the midst of his suffering on this side of heaven, right? No matter how terrible his suffering became, Job expected God to show up. Job went further, in fact. Job demanded that God would show up. Job was not content with a someday, somewhere, somehow. Job wanted some sort of solace in the here and in the now. So although it's true that the end of Job does align with what we believe about the promise of eternal life with God, that all things are going to someday, somehow be redeemed, that we can experience flourishing with God in heaven, I don't think this quite gets at all that's going on in the ending of the book of Job. You see, what made the ending to the Wheel of Time so meaningful to me was how it tied together nearly all the loose threads left hanging throughout all 14 of these books, plus the prequel, and it stayed true to how the characters were and were revealed. So what's the character of Job? What can we learn about what Job has shown us about who he is throughout this book. Well, we see that Job is a man of integrity, a servant of God. Throughout the book, he laments, not so much about his situation, although he's certainly suffering, and he does have that to lament about. His lament is focused on how God feels distant, unapproachable, hidden. Now, we as Christians, of course, believe that God is always present in our lives. We know this cognitively. Part of the reason I'm here in this pulpit is because I buy into that idea. But that doesn't change the fact that for so many of us, when we found ourselves in a similar place, in the midst of profound suffering, our hearts are not always convinced that God is truly with us. We can know it, right, without knowing it. So with this characteristic of Job in mind, that he has this deep faith, he's convinced that God is going to show up even though God feels distant and unapproachable, we can turn to what he says at the beginning of our reading this morning, at the beginning of chapter 42. Job answers the Lord, I know that you can do all things, he says, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then he paraphrases God when God shows up, right? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He goes on to say, Therefore I've uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now on the heels of what God speaks to him, you might imagine that Job feels intimidated by the power and mystery of God. I think Pastor Susan nailed it last week when she says, God's not practicing great pastoral care here. By showing up out of the whirlwind and being like, Job, let me tell you something. But I think that while Job might well feel overwhelmed, perhaps more importantly for him, and again, what Pastor Susan said last week, is that God shows up. God spoke. God loved Job enough to interact with him, to give him a peek behind the curtain. Although God doesn't directly answer the question that Job's been asking throughout the text, the proof of God's presence for Job is more an answer to the question than any theologizing or philosophizing could get at for Job. 
God showing up, this is the good news of the Christian story at every level. That God's presence redeems every part of our story. Maybe you're familiar with the poem about the footprints in the sand. Have you heard this poem before? Some of you have? Uh, I'll, I'll summarize it in case you haven't. Uh, at the end of her life, a believer sees her journey with the Lord like two sets of footprints in the sand. But there are several areas, parts of her life, filled with grief and suffering, where she sees only one set of footprints as she looks back on her life. And when she sees her Lord, she wonders about this and asks Jesus, why have you abandoned me in these times of suffering? And many of you know what Christ's response was to her, that it was in those times I carried you. And now there are, I, I, this poem gets at a number of key things. It misses a couple of things. I think that we're not just carried by our Lord, we're carried by our community. That's why the church is here. Uh, but, but this is what Job sees, right? Job sees when he asks God, where were you? Where have you been? Why are you so unapproachable? And God descends in the whirlwind from heaven. Job sees, oh, you're with me. God has never left him. God was with him listening to him, caring for him, and carrying him through his suffering. Even though Job searched for God without success, God was always at his side. God was always undergirding him, supporting him. I think that's why Job continues in chapter 42, saying, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, before moving on from this part of the text, I want to take a little rabbit trail around this phrase, I despise myself, because my ears kind of perked up when I read that, and, and I was stuck on that when I was reading through this this week. I'm not a huge fan of this translation of the Hebrew text, um, but before we get into why, a little English grammar lesson. Oh, these are my favorite. Um, some of you are English teachers, and you'll tell me what I get wrong here, and, and, and that's okay. Um, in English, we have subjects, right? Nouns that are subjects. We've got verbs, and then we've got objects, right? There are direct objects, indirect objects, all that fun stuff. In Hebrew, we've got some similar stuff going on. Subject, verb, object. I gave a gift, right? The gift is the object of the verb. It's the thing that's being verbed. Here, in the phrase, I despise myself, you've got subject is I Verb is despise, object is myself. But in the Hebrew, there is no object for this phrase, which means that myself is not in the Hebrew. We just have I despise. So translators have a bit of a pickle because despise needs an object. It's one of those verbs that's transitive, I think you call it, right? Intransitive, anyway, we don't need to go into grammar, I'm sorry. Um, but it needs an object. And so translators have to find a way out of this pickle, trying to specify what Job is despising. There's another way you can render this verb, reject. And I think a much more likely rendering of this phrase is I despise or I reject my words or I recant. Where Job is not telling God, I despise myself, I'm a worm, you're all powerful. It's not so much like that. It's more that Job is acknowledging his need for repentance, that he didn't get God all the way right. After all, there's no reason for Job to despise himself, 
But there's all the reason in the world for Job to recant, to recant his attack on God being absent in the midst of his suffering. So Job recants and then praises God, changing his mind. That's what repentance means about God's presence. And after this, the story of Job ends with his brothers and sisters arriving to share a meal with him. Job is no longer ostracized from community. He's welcomed back in. And there's this full restoration of Job's family and Job's property. And I wonder whether Job needed to have the same conversations with his brothers and sisters that he had throughout the book of Job with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, where maybe some of them were thinking, Job, maybe you've got some unconfessed sin in your life that you needed to repent of. I wonder if they suggested that he had a reason for suffering. The text is silent on this, though. Perhaps because what they said or didn't say doesn't matter to Job now. Because he knows that God is present with him. He knows that God has heard him. He knows that God's presence has already redeemed this part of his story. You know, there's only a couple of noticeable differences between the first part of Job's story in Job 1 and this last part, Job 42. I'm going to name two of them, and I think that these differences are tied together intentionally. The first difference is that Job sees the presence of God clearly, even in suffering. This is an internal change, not an external change. And so it's not immediately obvious, but sometimes the internal changes are the more important ones, I think. So that's the first change. And the second change is external. We see it. Job gives his daughters an inheritance along with his sons. Now, in the ancient Near East, this was simply not done. This is a rarity. It happens one other time in Scripture. It's with the daughters of a fellow named Zelophehad in Numbers 27. There are a couple other times in Scripture that this story is referenced, the daughters of Zelophehad, but this is the only other example in Scripture that I can find of someone making sure their daughters inherit something along with their sons. And I think that pairing these two examples of internal change and external change in Job together is really important. It gets at how righteousness, our relationship with God, knowing God is present even in the midst of our suffering, and justice, our relationship with one another, doing right by one another, these intertwine even in suffering and in the aftermath of suffering. As Job understands fully God's presence in all things at all times, he finds ways to act justly, even when that justice goes against the societal norms of the time. So looking in on Job's experience from the outside, you could be forgiven if you thought Job didn't stick the landing, right? You could be forgiven if you believed that Job's life didn't change much from the beginning to the end of the book. You could be forgiven for believing the ending of Job is unsatisfying. But like I said, sometimes the most important changes in our lives aren't the ones other people can see. They're the ones that happen in our inmost heart, in our soul, about how we see the world. And Job's eyes see a very different world in chapter 42 than they saw in chapter 1. This is what can happen to us in the aftermath of tragedy. 
when we allow God to redeem even the terrible parts of our stories. Now, I don't know where you are right now as you hear this. Um, Maybe you're not at chapter 42 right now. Maybe you're in the middle of the suffering that's going on in your life. And please know, if you're there, it's totally okay to wonder whether God is present. You might not be at the point Job is in our reading yet. For you, you might not even be in a place where God's presence would feel like good news. And if this is you and you'd like to talk with somebody about it, Pastor Susan and I would be more than happy to sit down and listen. But just know wherever you happen to be on this journey of tragedy, it's okay. But if you're on the other side of something, if you are in chapter 42, perhaps the way you got there is by remembering that we are a people who serve a God who's in the business of resurrection. We are a people who serves a God in the business of making all things new. God turns death into life. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that forms the pattern, both for what God wants to do in our lives and what God wants to do for our hopes and our dreams of what the world could be. The redemption that God brings isn't cliche phrases. It's not just silver linings. It is a changed heart. It is a changed world. Righteousness and justice intertwining in our lives. It's God's very presence lifting us out of sin and death. Therefore, we are called today to trust in the God who created all things in love and who in love promises to make all things new. God will do this, and God will redeem every part of your story, even the terrible, sad parts. May it be so. Thanks be to God.